If you have a copy of God's Word, could you take it and turn to Matthew chapter 5? Matthew chapter 5. We've been going through the Sermon on the Mount. We'll continue our study in Matthew 5. I'll begin reading this morning in verse 33. Matthew 5 and verse 33. These are the words of Jesus. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, for you can't make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil. But if anyone slapped you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Before we dig in today, I want you to get in your mind, I want us to have in our mind uh, some snapshots of people and just a hypothetical snapshot. So this isn't, this isn't real, but I think, I think getting our, our minds around maybe people Jesus would be talking to. So again, imagine with me, imagine um, a person named Fred. Fred is super generous. He, everyone knows that Fred writes big checks to good causes. He's known as a leader. And he's also really, really angry. He's angry with his family almost all the time. He's angry with those that work closely to him. Even even though he's loyal, if you're a friend, even close friends feel the anger. He really does his job well, but if you're his enemy... You, you better watch out. So my question is, would you say that Fred is like a complete person? What do you think Jesus would say about the life that Fred is living? Would he say this, this person is like their whole life is coming together well? Let's take another person. Let, let's, let's think of a person named Teresa. So Teresa is known for going to church much like you've done this morning. And she's known for, for even praying She's a teacher, and everybody would say she's a teacher that really cares. 
and she's invested in making a difference in the community. She even gets you know, accolades because she makes a difference. She's that kind of teacher. And also what we would want to know about Teresa is she's a serial adulterer. She's certainly not above on bailing out of her marriage if something better comes along. And sometimes she doesn't quite tell the truth, and, and a lot of people around her know that. What, what do you think Jesus would say about the life that Teresa is living? If that's her story, what would you say? Would you say that she's really flourishing spiritually? Kind of enjoying all that God has for her? One more. Let's think uh, of a guy named Colin. So Colin is the guy that really knows the Bible. He's the one who has the deep insights, especially when you're in a small group or some sort of class. He's the one with the deep insights, the answers. And what's more is everybody appreciates him because he's a volunteer. He volunteers for this cause. He sits on this board. He helps out with this particular thing. He even volunteers at church. He's glad to help in, kind of do his part. It goes far beyond that. And he looks at porn several times a week. Just a part of his life. Everybody sees him as a family man. He's taking care of aging parents. He, like, really seems to be there for his kids. Seems like he's providing for his wife. And then there is this other thing where, like, you, you better not cross him. So, again, I ask, like, what would Jesus say about this man? What would Jesus say about Colin? My guess is, as you hear each of these scenarios, and they're just hypothetical, they're just made up, but I don't think any of us would describe the people that we've just heard as like a complete person, a whole person, a person that's flourishing, a person that has experienced everything in life that God would have for them. Everything in life is coming together to tell the same story. No matter which angle you look at, you say, that person is like, they're complete. They, they're not two-faced. They're not divided in their heart. They're, they're, they're one person. There's something perfect kind of whole about them. No one would say that those descriptions that I just gave you match that, these scenarios. And yet, and yet being a whole person is, if Jesus is targeting anything in the Sermon on the Mount, especially in Matthew 5, I think he's targeting this, getting at what it means to be a whole person, like complete, flourishing, I think this is his target, especially as he gives commands. I mean, what Jesus does, and, and you even see behind me, what Jesus is doing is taking any sort of values we think we have and actually turning them upside down and making sure we're, we're reset with his values. We're making sure that we're thinking of behavior as, as he describes it, not just how the, the air we breathe. And many cultures would say, Jesus, I think your values are upside down. Jesus begins to kind of lay out what a whole person looks like. And I kind of find him starting and ending, and then there's a lot of commands in the middle. Some, some people have called this kind of the, the, a sandwich technique where you have like a, a bun on this side and a bun on this side, and then all the meat is in the middle. Or, or if you will, like bookends where Jesus says this and then gives content and then has another bookend. I find that in Matthew chapter 5. Because in verse 20, before Jesus starts rolling out his commands... Matthew 5.20, Jesus will tell his, his followers that unless the righteousness, and I think that's an important word, we'll come to it, unless the righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you're not getting into the kingdom of heaven. So what he's talking about in the remainder of the commands is righteousness. 
But what exactly is righteousness? I gave you this description a few weeks back. It's by Jonathan Pennington. Righteousness is that whole person. Notice that word because I think it matters. Whole person behavior. So not one thing on the outside and a different thing on the inside. Not one thing when I'm at church, different when I'm with other people. But a whole person behavior that accords with God's nature, will, and coming kingdom. You see, why I think that matters. So when you have Jesus saying you need this surpassing righteousness, and and then he begins to give commands, and then notice how he ends it. What I read a moment ago in verse 48 What he ends, this whole section of teaching, is says, you must be perfect. And and again, the idea, we hear perfect and we may hear faultless and flawless. And that's understandable. But this word over and over again is translated like complete, whole. Everything comes together. Nothing is divided. Nothing tells a different story. So Jesus gives all these commands, but kind of they're bookended by righteousness and a whole life. This is the way Jesus wants his followers to live. This is what it will mean for us not to like scratch our head and say, that doesn't make sense. We're going to continue hearing the words of Jesus, and we just need to remind ourselves that Jesus is is the one who has the authority to tell us how to live. So in Matthew 5, 1 and 2, he ascends this mountain almost like Moses, right? Verses 3 through 12 in Matthew 5, he begins to pronounce blessings on this group, on this group, on this group. He begins to give the identity to his followers. He says, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. And then he says, all the law and all, everything that came before me and instruction from God, all your Old Testament, all the commands, all that has its fulfillment in me. And then he begins to give the commands. We're going to continue hearing these words of Jesus this week. And what happened, what happened at the end of this sermon is that the whole audience was blown away. I've never preached a sermon where the whole audience was blown away. It's a plus when like the majority of people don't fall asleep. That's a win. And I'm keeping my eyes on you today. That's, but seriously, when when Jesus gives this sermon, Everybody is just astonished. They're blown away in chapter seven at his authority, his power to say what he says. And so we come into this, and last week we heard Jesus give commands about lust and and the permanence of marriage. And the week before that, we heard Jesus give commands about anger. And today, I, I just want us to look at three more signs of what a whole life is going to really look like. And in the passage that I read a moment ago, there are so many different, like, doors we could open and explore in that room and explore here, and what about this, and what about that. There are just pages written on that. We don't have time to do a deep dive into these, uh, a lot of these questions. But here's what I think we can do. We can hear from Jesus, and we can discern, like, what, is he, what does he intend? What's the good behind? Why would he say this command? It's not just that he's trying to have us give mindless obedience to something and then just scoff at us mindlessly obeying. He has something good in store for us. What is that? And where, where do his commands meet me? H- how can I be obedient to what he says? So that first area that we read kind of the, this morning, the first area we read was, began in verse 33. It was about the oaths and, and taking those and swearing by this. It's a little bit of context. I mean, Jesus says, you've heard it said you you shouldn't swear falsely, but you should perform. And Jesus says, I I tell you, don't take an oath at all. Because what was going on, and you can see it even in verse uh, 34, 
there was this kind of game they were playing, and, and we, we make up games. The games they were playing is, well, I didn't swear by God, but I swore by heaven. And so I don't have to be quite as honest if I swear by heaven as if I had sworn by God. And then if I swear by earth, then I really don't have to be quite... And you can imagine where there's not all sorts of documentation that your word really matters. And so there's this layer on, and, and kind of a, our equivalent would be like crossing our fingers. I really didn't mean that because I didn't swear by God. And these are the games that were going on. And Jesus says, enough of that. And he says in verse 37, let what, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that's coming from evil. So what's going on is in, in their time, they have all these levels of like truthfulness. Heaven, earth, Jerusalem, your own head. We don't exactly verify our truthfulness by that today. So you're not going to have anybody today swearing by, like, I swear by Washington, D.C. They may swear at Washington, D.C. and swear because of Washington, but they're not going to swear by Washington. We, we don't do that. What, what I think the equivalent is, is the tendency we have to go, well, this time I really mean it. I promise. I promise I'm telling you the truth. I mean it this time. I mean it. I, I really mean it. I'm being truthful here. I swear. And we, and we begin to layer up all these sorts of things try to guarantee, hey, I'm really telling the truth here. Some Christians take this particular command to say, uh, we're not allowed to confirm the truthfulness of a statement like even in a courtroom. So I hear that and I can appreciate that. I can appreciate that argument. I I think the context points me in a little bit different direction. So I think by conscience, I can, I can confirm by oath, okay, I, I'm, I'm promising to tell the truth. I think I can do that. I think the greater context here are these games that we want to play to kind of hedge our truthfulness. So I think I, I can affirm that I'm being honest with someone. But I think the driving characteristic of, of Jesus, what he's really getting at here, is, is that his followers be truthful so that you can be trusted. So that we deal in truth so that people can trust what we say. And Jesus would say, you're not complete. You're not a whole person. You're not being perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect if you're playing fast and loose with the truth. So the question is, like, what, what, what in our lives need to be changed if we're going to be compliant to what Jesus says? So take inventory of your life. Is there any reason right now, is there any reason why people would have a, have a right to not believe everything you say? Is there something in your life where you've not really been consistent? Do you lie? Are you two-faced? Where this group of friends sees this, this group of friends sees that? Are there places where you're bearing false witness? Are there places where you're exaggerating and embellishing? When is it that you can't be taken at your word? Is it when you, you try to be funny or clever and the story really didn't happen the way you're telling it? But it sure sounds funnier, and everybody kind of gets a good laugh out of it. But, but you're presenting it as, yeah, this is the way it happened. And we've all, we've all heard those stories where we know, I don't think it quite happened that way. I don't think that's the way it really went down. Is there something in you that will exaggerate so that you look better and someone else looks worse? Or someone else gets painted in a negative light, but you, you come out of it looking pretty positive. And you just shade the truth, you leave this out, you embellish this. Do we do this? Are we tempted to do this? 
I mean, doesn't it feel good when everybody thinks like we're smart, everybody likes us? I don't, I don't know what motivations drive this. And I don't know where it always manifests itself, whether it's at work or with friends or with church. But I think what Jesus would get to the root of here is when you stray, when you walk into this sin, I pray that we see it quicker where I begin to tell this story and actually it's not factually correct. And I know it in my heart, but it sounds better if I tell it a certain way. Or I know I'm hedging. I know I'm not giving the full truth at this particular instance. I'm praying that the Lord would get a, make us quicker to discern what's going on there. It could be that this is a struggle, and it could be this is something you need to confess. It could be today that before we ever come to the Lord's table, this is something you need to repent of. It could be that you need to make plans to confess your sins one to another, to tell someone else, and invite their prayer, and you say, I need your prayers because I've not been a truthful person. I regularly lie to coworkers. Jesus is calling us to be a whole person, a complete person, just like our Father. Our Father always tells the truth. And Jesus always told the truth. Let's look at the next area. Jesus has teaching in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 38. I read this a moment ago. Let's look at it again. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That was Old Testament national Israel was given this. So command as a nation. And it really, as much as it sounds like vengeful, it actually curbed a lot of violence that just kept going on, feuds that kept being retaliated against. It was meant to, like, let's end this. This is, this is justice. And it's actually humane, especially in that part of the world. But Jesus adds to that and says, I'm telling you, don't resist the one who's evil. And then he goes through these series of things that would have been all too real. Even the phrases that we, we use, even non-Christians use, like turn the other cheek, don't they? Even, even people that have no allegiance to Jesus Christ would, would talk about going the extra mile. Jesus gave some real-life examples, particularly geared toward Jews dealing with Roman occupation of their country. You know, as I've thought about the commands that Jesus is laying out in the scenarios, he's He's, he's talking about, I, I really feel in some ways handicapped in being able to speak to this as clearly as probably some of my brothers and sisters all over the world, where I, I've never been struck on my face, literally struck on my face because of my allegiance to Jesus Christ. But there are, but there are those in all over this world, Southeast Asia, East Asia, Middle East, Africa. There are people all over this world where they could preach this sermon better than I could about what this obedience to Jesus really requires. They could give us insight into how much we even take for granted our freedom. Yet, so even, even with that caveat, okay, so I'm not the expert in dealing with what it means to deal with even that, like, government-sanctioned persecution. I still feel in my heart, kind of rising up in my heart, a desire to get out of these hard words of Jesus. There's something in me that makes me want to say, Jesus, could you qualify that a little bit more? And one way I'm even tempted to do that is by thinking through some of the hardest, hard case scenarios and layer other scriptures. Well, what about this? What about this? So what about if I see a neighbor beating up an innocent, innocent person? Should I come to the rescue or do I follow your command? Or what does this say about the military? What does this say about the police? Are, are, are they not... Or what does this say about Hitler? Should he, should he have just had his way? 
And when I do that, so I'm just speaking for myself here. When I go deep into kind of all those subjects, and all those have, like, they're, they're really important. And I think some of those are context answered. So, of course, there are other scriptures that talk about, you know, the law and the state and military. Of course, there's places that address some of that. Of course, you have a license to help your neighbor. But when I start going to the, the hard case scenarios, what I often find myself doing is if I find a, just like a little loophole, I can get out of things that actually I am dealing with. So I can go years without having to deal what about Hitler? You see, that's not the issue in my heart. The issue in my heart is when someone wants to shame me, someone wants to kind of dishonor me, and I really, really don't want to turn the other cheek. What I want to do is plan for a retaliation that is so strong that they will never mess with me again. You see, that's where it, that's where it meets me. And I'm guessing for many of us, that's where it meets you too. There's a place to answer the, the bigger questions and how all this intersects with other scripture. But is there a place where you are being, like you're having to take something you really don't want to take? Is there a place where, and we, we read about it a moment ago, is there a place where you are enduring the, the loss, of, loss of property? Some people can catalog things that were taken from them, let's say an inheritance or this. Or they can catalog those things. That happened 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years ago. They know everything that they were supposed to get, but they, they didn't get. And they, they dwell on that. Might Jesus have a word for us today? When he says, if you lose your coat, you lose your tunic, you still have me. Would Jesus have a word for those that are feeling like, you know what, this is just an inconvenience. I'm tired of it. In those days, Roman law, you could compel a person to walk a mile. And Jesus said, yeah, walk that mile and walk another one. How inconvenient. I don't want to do that. I get exasperated when I'm called to inconvenience myself. Once it gets a certain degree, it's like, oh, I don't want to do that. I shouldn't, have, I shouldn't be expected to. I, what about my rights? And do you hear Jesus just dealing with our hearts? What's going on there? The person begging something, I, I would rather meet that with judgmentalism. And Jesus says, can we just take inventory in your heart? Are you a generous person? When you hear Jesus addressing these things, I think the temptation is to say, Jesus, that's way too far. <laughs> I don't have to take that. I won't take that. It'd be silly to obey you. I'm not going to obey you. That's not how the world plays this game today. And I'm going to end up losing. I'm, I'm, I'm going to end up missing out. I'm going to end up having to take some insults that I really don't want to take if I follow you. And if we feel the pushback in our hearts, then we're close to understanding why people seriously thought Jesus was delusional. They thought he was crazy. And when we seriously take what he said, we recognize, no, he wasn't and isn't delusional. He always has wanted our good and the good of others. What he wants you so whether you're early in life or whether you're late in life, what he wants you to be is free from a life that is plotting out revenge every time you get. Free from keeping score. Because there's nothing good about that in your life. Bitterness grows up. It isn't, it isn't, it isn't a place that like, well, you don't ever have to worry about justice. Justice doesn't matter. That's never what God says. Justice does matter. And we can even long for that justice, but we've got to get to a place where we 
don't feel like we have to have personal revenge. So what needs to be changed in my life, in my heart? Well, I got to take another look, a fresh look at my Heavenly Father, who will give justice, but also commission Jesus to give a, a life of generosity. And I take another look at Jesus and I say, I really, I really don't want to be struck. And I realize Jesus was struck. And, and I really don't want to lose anything. And I realize Jesus lost his garment, just like he told us to. And I don't really want to endure, like, inconvenience. And yet Jesus went the extra mile carrying his own cross. And I really don't want to give, but Jesus gave to beggars like us. So we need another look at him, and, and we need to follow him. This is the whole life. So Jesus is saying, there's part of your life that won't be complete if you're holding on to revenge. You're not going to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. You're not going to be complete. Uh, but when you go and you say, it is your body broken for me, your blood shed for me. Because of that, I'll follow you. I'll do what you say. Jesus closes out even giving these series of commands in Matthew 5 that have been challenging for all of us, I would imagine. In verse 43, he says this, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor, but it's okay to hate your enemy. Well, you're not going to find that in the Bible. That was just tradition at that point, kind of piggybacking on the Bible. Jesus says, no, no, love your enemies and pray for them, the ones who persecute you. Jesus calls on his followers to offer prayers and demonstrate love. Are you being tormented? Some are. This doesn't remove your appeals to justice and uh, appeal to, like, proper authority. It it doesn't remove that. What it gets at is the heart of what are you thinking about this other person? Are you praying? And if you say, Jesus, that is so hard... Absolutely. Absolutely. But Jesus has something good in mind, and it's the call to extend love beyond just our friends. That's kind of easy for me to love those. And love those who love me, that's really easy. They're singing my praises. I can give them a thumbs up too. And my family close to me, I mean, my neighbors, I, I, I can live in love there. Jesus is calling us to extend that even to the people that have not warranted love in our estimation, but to demonstrate love there. This one requires, I think even Jesus knows the difficulty of this and layers a promise. He says, when you do this, you're knowing you have an intimate relationship with the Father so that you would know you are sons of God, sons of your heavenly Father. It takes a level of faith to believe this. But when we walk this path, we, we get a glimpse into our own lives. That, okay, this is what Jesus, this is what he lived. He loved his enemies. This is how he prayed. Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. This is, this is who he is. We know our Father's love. So what needs to be changed? Who am I called to love? Even at an inconvenient level, even at a very frustrating level, who am I called to love? How might this change your prayers tonight, tomorrow? Where do we need to confess our need of the Lord's help? I, what I love about this passage, especially in, in light of this morning, is... This passage makes me realize how inadequate I am to obey Jesus' commands here. 
I feel it. And I think what I feel is what Jesus described. You, you, Curtis, are poor in spirit. You don't have the spirit here to do this. There's nothing in you that really says, well, I'm just going to rise up and do these things. There's nothing in me. I want to run the opposite direction. And so I come to Jesus and go, I'm not batting a thousand in this, okay? My trajectory is not up and to the right in this area. I am struggling. I, I come lacking and I need help and I need help outside of me. I don't have anything even internally that's making me want to obey you, Jesus. And at that moment, as we come closer and closer to the Lord... We recognize we need help, and we need outside help. We need someone to come to our aid. We need more than someone even to just clear our record, as important as that is, because our record, my record of loving my enemy isn't too great. My record of praying for those who persecute me is not too great. And I come to the Lord confessing that, and I need need that record to be cleared because it stands against me saying, but this is what Jesus told, told you to do. But I need more than just my record cleared. I also need my heart changed. I need to be changed so that I actually want to do these things. So that I have an inner desire to say, you said it, Jesus, and I trust you would only want my good. I want to do what you say. I need that inner desire. I need someone to change my heart. And that is exactly what Jesus does. He, he, he doesn't lighten anything. He doesn't like kind of lighten the uh, admission policy so that he can get a bunch of people into heaven. These bar, this bar is raised high, and yet Jesus models it for us, and, and he models everything that he's telling us to do. And then he goes to the cross for us, for our sin. But before he did that, he sat at a table with people who would betray him, forsake him, deny him, and he gathered he gathered them around and said, here's a meal you didn't prepare, but I want you to take it. And that table has eternal significance for us. Because it's at that table we're reminded of a bread that he gave us, and he said, this is like my body, broken for you. I come to the table, and this is my cup. This is the blood of the new covenant. This is like my blood poured out for you. We sing, what could wash away my sin? And we have the answer, nothing, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What could ever make you whole again? What could ever bring you to the place where you're complete, you're living the life that God always designed for you to live? Nothing, nothing could make you whole again but the blood of Jesus. So all those who are trusting in Jesus, all those who have confessed their sins, all those who are leaning on Jesus, all those who are even currently repenting can come to this table today. And and what we're doing, it says that we're with him. We are with Jesus. We are with him in his death. We are with him, not just in his death, but in his resurrection as he came to a new life. We've been raised to walk in a new kind of life as well. Can I ask you to bow your head and and ask the deacons to get ready to serve us. And in this moment, we have what, a, what an opportunity this morning to prepare our hearts. What, a, what an opportunity to confess we are poor in spirit. We're not, we're not where we are. We're, we're incomplete. We're not whole. But Lord, you can make us whole again. What an opportunity to come to the table and say, your body was broken for me, for us. Your blood was shed for me. 
What an opportunity to participate in that together. Not just isolated, but together as the body of Christ. Together as the family of God. So the band's going to play for a moment. And if you'll just hold on to your bread and the juice, and we'll take it together as a church family in just a moment.